Well, uh, good morning, Redeemer Church. Uh, as you can tell, I'm not Michael Badger, um, but please pray for him uh, this morning. He was not feeling well. I, we, it was planned that I was going to preach today anyway, um, but, uh, but he decided to stay home because he's, he's really not feeling well this morning. So uh, please pray for him today. Um, <clears throat> so as we get started, please uh, open your Bibles with me today to Mark uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, to our passage. And before we get into the passage this morning, I'd like to take a moment and, and just clarify a few things. Uh, so you, you, you may be saying to yourself, wait a minute, uh, it's Christmas time, it's Advent, why, uh, why are we talking about the death of Christ? Uh, sh- shouldn't we be doing that closer to Easter time? Um, uh, you know, shouldn't we be preaching through Advent, through uh, the first few chapters of the gospel, through the birth of Christ, through everything that led up to that? The Israelites waiting, the prophetic silence for 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What about baby Jesus, silent night, away in a manger? Well, those are valid questions, <clears throat> and, uh, and I'd like to address that this morning. So, Advent, or the weeks leading up to Christmas, is a time of year when we as believers, as the church, at this time in history, look back to Christ's first coming with celebration and with awe, but we also look forward to Christ's second coming with expectation and with assurance It's a time when we intentionally focus on the arrival of Christ. But how do we truly understand the significance of Christ's first coming? Why it was important? Why did he come? Why do we celebrate a little baby being born? Why do we look to this event in history with awe and wonder? Also, how do we understand Christ's second coming? Why it will be important? why we wait with expectation, why he will come back, and why we, why we wait without fear, but with hope as believers. But it all comes back to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We must first understand the basics of the gospel if we are to really get what, what celebrating the arrival of Christ is, why, why we would want to celebrate this. Romans 5, 8 says this, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And again in Colossians 2, starting in verse 13, Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And again, 
the classic, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. And in 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. To fully understand the significance of Christmas time and of Advent, of the coming of the Messiah, to understand why we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. What that means, ransom from what? To understand the significance of a Savior coming into the world, we must first understand what it meant for Him to die on the cross. What it meant for Him to take our sins, to fully submit to the Father's will, to take the wrath of God for us so that we could be set free from the law of sin and guilt. So if you separate the gospel from Christmas, if you separate the gospel from this time of year, it becomes just a cultural holiday and nothing more. It's just a pretend thing that people think is fun to do. It's a, it's a happy time of year with fun movies and fun music and fun events. People are nice to each other. Everything is peachy. But, but it has no deeper meaning other than tradition. There's no deeper hope or assurance or rest. No reminder that there's anything else. Which is why this time of year is so commonly associated with spikes in depression. You see this. It's dark, it's cold, it's gray. People may be separated from their families, remembering lost loved ones, struggling with sadness, emptiness, loneliness. Why do all this stuff if I have nobody to do it with? What's the point? Bah humbug, right? We, this is how people feel this time of year, commonly. But there is a deeper meaning. There is a deeper reason to celebrate, and that is the gospel. Amen? So if we recognize the gospel for what it is, then we can fully grasp the weight of the Son of God, the creator of the universe, being born and placed in a lowly manger. We can understand why we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us, and ransom captive Israel. If we understand what it meant for him to die on the cross, we can then understand why this time of year is important to a believer and to the church. So all that being said, frankly, we did not plan this. Uh, we didn't plan, uh, we, didn't, we didn't intentionally set up this sermon series uh, so that we would be covering Christ's death during Christmas time. We have just continued in our sermon series in Mark, as we have throughout this past year, and God has planned it so that we happen to be here at this time in Mark and at this time of year. So instead of stopping and doing a whole Advent or Christmas sermon series, 
we felt it to be most appropriate to follow God's lead and continue through Mark. Why exactly God has set it up that way, I don't know. But nevertheless, we will continue as he has arranged. And we will trust his sovereignty in that. Because clearly our church needs to hear these things at this time. Christmas is about the coming of Christ, our Lord, the Messiah. So that he could do the things that we will be preaching through today and in the coming weeks. So as we get started, please pray with me this morning. Father God, we love you. And we thank you for giving us your word. God, we thank you for giving us your son. That we can know you. God, speak to us through your scriptures this morning that we may know you better. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So looking back, two weeks ago, Pastor Michael preached on Jesus' trial before the chief priests and a whole council of Jewish leaders. There were several irregular things about this trial. It was not in the usual location. It would normally have taken place in, in a marketplace or in, in public near the temple, but instead it was held at the high priest's residence. It was not at the usual time. It was done at night or in early morning, and it was done in unusual haste. We see this, if you look back in Mark 14, they wanted Jesus dead as soon as possible. They were seeking testimony against him to put him to death, but they found no testimony that agreed. And due to the Levitical law, the Jewish law that they followed, they could not convict him and put him to death because there were not two testimonies that matched up. Lots of people were saying bad things against him, but no two people agreed on the two things. People were bearing false witness and making things up against him. So finally, the high priest just flat out asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus answers how? I am. I am. Again, making reference to the Old Testament when, when Moses is speaking with God and is going to go back and tell the Israelites the law. And Moses says, ask God, who, who should I tell them told me all of this? And God says, I am. This is God's name for himself. And this is how Jesus answers uh, the Jews here. Jesus is flagrantly claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God. Also, in John 10, starting in verse 30, we see Jesus say this, I and the Father are one. He's not beating around the bush. This is a huge statement, even to this day, right? 
Many people in the world or in other religions believe that Jesus existed, that he was a historical figure, that he really lived. They believe that he was a good man, a moral person, a great teacher, a prophet, a rabbi, a guru, but Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be one with God. C.S. Lewis describes this well in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with, with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something, something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The high priest hears Jesus' response and considers it what? Blasphemy. Because for any person who wasn't the Son of God to claim this would be. It would be blasphemy. But they were blind to the truth of who Jesus was. The high priest does not stop to consider if this could be true. That Jesus could be the Messiah. The I am come to earth. Emmanuel. God with us. What Israel had been waiting for for hundreds of years. That, that they would have been well aware of the prophecies. Jesus is immediately condemned as deserving death due to his claim to be the Son of God, which if he was truly only a man, again, this would be blasphemy. But as we know, that's not the case. And so they began beating him and spitting on him. And that was the end of his trial, his trial before the Jews and the high priest. This brings us to last week. Pastor Paul uh, preached on Peter's denial. He denies Christ while Jesus is being put on trial before the Jews. Jesus foretells this to Peter, but Peter is so bold to tell Jesus that he would never deny him. Not even unto death. The pride he had. He had the idea that he could stand in his own power. And instead, where do we find Peter during Jesus' trial? Scared, hiding, lying, cursing, denying that he knows Jesus, ashamed of who he is. Everything that Jesus said would happen, happens. And Peter is left broken and weeping. Still, where do we find Jesus? Before the Jewish leaders being accused, bound, mocked, beaten, and spit on. So that brings us to this week. We find ourselves in the beginning verses of Mark 15, 
where we're continuing this narrative story of what's happening to Jesus after he has been betrayed by Judas and he's taken into custody. He's being brought before the Jewish leaders, before Herod, and before Pilate, all to be tried for his wrongdoing. And today we'll be focusing specifically on verses 1 through 5. Jesus before Pilate. Now, as an aside here, as we look at the other gospel accounts of these events, they're all a little bit different. We see small details in each one that give us a good picture of the full account of what happened. So I would encourage you to read this account in all of the gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Again, because you get a more full picture of really what happens. I'll be making some reference to the other Gospels as we make our way through this passage today. So Mark's account in verses 1 through 5, it's very short and to the point, which has been the consistency in his style of writing that we've seen. Mark is looking at the events of Jesus' life sort of from a 30,000 view, 30,000 foot view, right? Sort of hitting the high points, all describing who Jesus is. And when we see verses 1 through 5 here, it's really very straightforward. Jesus is brought before Pilate by the Jewish leaders. He's questioned by Pilate. Jesus gives an answer. The Jews accuse him. He's silent. Pilate is amazed. That's it. That's Mark's description of it all. But there's a lot more depth there. So the first question that I had when, looking, when, when reading through this and when studying was, well, why did they take Jesus to Pilate and to Herod if you read the account in Luke chapter 23? Why didn't the Jewish leaders just convict and kill Jesus themselves? Well, we get our answer in John's account. Chapter 18, starting in verse 28. It says this, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, who's the high priest, to the governor's headquarters, Pilate. It was early morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So keep in mind, all of this is happening during the Jewish Passover feast. During the Jewish celebration of when they're, when they're leaving Egypt and God sends this final plague on Egypt after Pharaoh won't let his people go, won't let the Jews go, and God decides to send the angel of death to kill all the firstborn children in Egypt. But he tells the Israelites kill a lamb, sacrifice a lamb, and spread its blood on your doorways. And the angel of death, when he sees this blood, will pass over, and you'll be safe from this wrath. You'll be safe from this curse. So this is, this is what they're celebrating. And isn't it interesting that that's exactly what Jesus is doing? That when we see this picture of the Passover... It's a type 
when we see in, this in the Old Testament, it's pointing to Jesus. So, getting back to the scripture. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Being Jesus. And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So they don't answer his question. They say, oh, oh, trust us. He's doing evil. We, we wouldn't be here if he wasn't evil. <clears throat> and Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. So the, the, law, the, the Jews were under this Roman rule. So the Romans, Pilate, would have been well aware that the Jews had these, all these laws that they followed. He may not have known all the details of it, but he would know that they had their own law. And so that's, that's what he says. He says, don't bother me with this. You have laws. Take him yourself. But the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So that tells us a couple of things. One, being under the Roman rule, they couldn't put anyone to death. But the Romans could. And they say, it's, it's against us. Like we, we can't put anyone to death. So it tells us they wanted Jesus dead. We don't want him punished. We want him dead. So this is why they brought him to Pilate for a more severe judgment because they wanted Jesus dead. Next we see Pilate and Jesus having a conversation. Pilate asked Jesus, and again we're looking at the passage in Mark here. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? So this is an odd first question to ask, right? Pilate doesn't know Jesus. Why would he just start off by saying, are you the king of the Jews? What's the context here? Why does he ask him this? Well, again, we find our answer in Luke's account. In Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 2, it says, And they began to accuse him. So again, this is the Jewish, these are the, the Jewish leaders who had brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So they're setting up Jesus to be viewed as this threat to the Roman power. And so Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He's thinking literally. Okay, they're telling, they're telling me that you're claiming to be a king. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, Jesus, you have said so. You see, Jesus is a king. But he's not the king that they thought he was. Right? He did come to set the Israelites free and to set the world free and to reign forever. These are all true statements. 
But Israel was waiting for a conquering king. They were waiting for a David to arrive and to rise up mighty men to free them from the tyranny of Rome. But that's not what God's plan was, and they didn't see it. So Jesus answers him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. See, the Jewish leaders were trying to falsely paint this picture of Jesus as a conqueror. To convince Pilate that Jesus was power hungry, that he was challenging the Jewish people to rise up against Rome, to rebel. And these are big accusations. But we see Jesus respond to these accusations how? With silence. And how does that affect Pilate? He's amazed. He's amazed that who would be silent before all of these accusations? We see a consistency here when we look at each situation or each trial and how Jesus responds to his accusers. If we go back to Mark 14, Jesus being before the Jews and the high priest, how does he respond to the accusations there? Silence. In Mark 15, how does he respond to the accusations? Silence. In Luke 23, when it describes him before Herod as well, how does he respond to the accusations? I bet you can guess. Silence. All Silence. Jesus answers their questions, but when it comes to defending himself from their accusations, he is silent. So let's look at these accusations a little bit closer. The Jewish leaders accuse him of wanting to destroy the temple, of blasphemy, claiming to be the Son of God, of misleading Israel of forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, claiming to be a king, doing evil, stirring up the people. Again, these are big accusations. But is Jesus guilty of any of these things? Did he come to earth to conquer, to free Israel from the tyranny of Rome? No. He clarifies why he came to earth. While talking to Pilate, in John 18. In verse 37, he says this. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So all that Jesus did and all that he said was truthful. Again, we see in John 5, we find Jesus explaining who he is 
and why he came, this time to the Jews themselves. So we're taking a step back in time here. And he says this, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So are the accusations of Jesus true? Well, yes and no, right? Did he want to destroy the temple? Not necessarily. Yes and no. When he talked about the temple being destroyed and him raising it up in three days with these on hands, he was talking about his death and resurrection. Blasphemy, claiming to be the Son of God. Yeah, he's guilty of that. Because it's true. Misleading Israel. Was he misleading Israel? No. He was trying to lead Israel to the Father. Forbidding to give tribute to Caesar? No. What did he say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Claiming to be a king. Christ, again, yes, he is, he's guilty of that because that is the truth. Doing evil. That one's just a lie. He's not doing evil. And stirring up the people. Yep, he was stirring up the people. But not to rebel against Rome. He was stirring up the people to open their eyes, to repent and believe. That's what he was stirring up the people for. So why is Jesus silent? What does this show us about who Jesus is? I believe there are several things we can learn from Jesus' silence here. In his silence before the Jews, his silence before Herod, his silence before Pilate. It is evidence, one, of his perfect identity. Two, it's evidence of his perfect obedience to the Father. And three, it is evidence of his perfect love for us. His perfect identity, his perfect obedience, and his perfect love. So first, his identity. His silence attests to his perfect identity by fulfilling the scriptures and the prophecy that had been written and spoken about him for hundreds of years. It shows us who he is. It is another sign 
showing that he is indeed the Messiah, come to fulfill the law and prophecies. All of Scripture had been pointing to Jesus from the very beginning. We see this both in prophecies and in types found all throughout Scripture. First, taking a look at a few prophecies. Daniel 7, starting in verse 13, says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. It's Jesus. Isaiah 9, Paul read earlier. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's Jesus. Again in Isaiah 53, in verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's Jesus. And we see types of Jesus, these signs of Jesus all throughout the Old Testament that point to him. Going all the way back to Genesis. With Noah, you see God providing a way out from under his wrath through one man. Again in Genesis, with Abraham being willing to give his son to God as a sacrifice offering. Does that sound familiar? Exodus, again what we mentioned before with Passover... This was a representation of what Jesus would do, not just for Israel, but for everyone. Again, in Exodus, when we see Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt, we see their delivery through this man of God. It's a type of Jesus. And in Numbers, when the Israelites are out of Egypt and they've been delivered and they're out in this desert and they start grumbling because they're hungry and because they're thirsty and because they're tired and they start grumbling against Moses and against God, what happens? God sends venomous snakes in to start biting them and people start dying. And that sounds harsh, right? But then God also makes a way out. He tells Moses, take this snake, create a snake out of bronze, and put it on a pole, and, and hoist it up 
and anybody who looks at this will not die. It's a picture of Christ. We see it in Leviticus, the Levitical law, showing sin and the need of a sacrifice to cover sin. It's a picture of Jesus. All throughout the prophets, Isaiah and Zechariah and Jeremiah, they all looked forward to a time of salvation, to a time of righteousness, a time of deliverance. It all pointed to Jesus. Do you see it? Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of these prophecies, of these types that God had been planning from the beginning. His fulfillment of these things was just another confirmation that he was who he said he was. These are just a few of the prophecies and the types found in Scripture little signposts that point to Christ. But if you dig, there are so many more. This, this is why we encourage you to read your Bible. Read it for yourself. Pick it up. Not just to randomly open it and look for a feel-good moment, a verse for encouragement or a little devotion. Can God use that? Yes. But there's so much more depth when you see things from the beginning to the end. There's so much richness in the Word of God. Jesus, the Word, is there all throughout. Truly, God has given us His Son. Next, Jesus' silence shows us His perfect obedience to the Father. To quote from Pastor Michael's sermon a couple of weeks ago, he said, Jesus chose to endure it all to secure our salvation. Not just after he said, let your will be done, but over and over he chose to submit to the Father. We see Jesus' submission to the Father's will all throughout his ministry. In Matthew 6, what we know as the Lord's Prayer, when He's teaching His disciples to pray. Part of that, in part of that teaching, in part of that prayer, it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Again, looking at Mark 14, what Pastor Michael preached on a couple of weeks ago. Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what? Your will be done. And again, we see in John 12, he describes it this way. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. 
Again, we see in 1 Peter chapter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, that being the Father. And again, Philippians chapter 2, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Who was he being obedient to? The Father. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father through birth into a broken world, through life as a carpenter's son, through temptation from the devil, through three years of relentless ministry and travel, through being despised by his own culture, through being betrayed by his enemies and his friends, through being tried and convicted unjustly, through being tortured and beaten and spit on and made fun of, through having his authority challenged by all. He was obedient to the Father's will for him to die. He knew from the very beginning. He knew. He was meant for sacrifice. As Isaac was led up the mountain by Abraham, saying, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham answering, God will provide. God has provided for us by giving us his son. God provided then and he has provided now. Jesus was in it till the end. Always obedient to the Father's will despite who he was. And who was he? We, we've touched on this, but who was Jesus? We know that he was the Son of God. We know that he was one with God. Hebrews 1 calls him the heir of all things, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, through whom the world was created, upholding the universe by the word of his power. That's how Hebrews de describes Jesus. And all that being said, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, though he was in the form of God, according to Philippians. Despite who he was, he was fully and completely yielded in submission to the Father. And it shows in his silence. Finally, Jesus' silence is an, it's evidence of his love and in turn the Father's love. Scripture defines Jesus as being the exact imprint of the nature of God, the Father. So in this, we see the love of the Father toward us. That through Jesus' ministry and travels, we see how he responds to people. We see how he responds to sinners. He has compassion on the crowds when they're following him in Matthew 15. He has compassion on the paralytic man let down through the roof 
in Matthew 9. He has compassion for the woman caught in adultery in John 8. He has compassion on the woman by the well in John 4. We see his heart. In Matthew 11, starting in verse 28, he says this. Come to me, all who labor and, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When asked by the leper for healing, he responded how? The leper says, if you are willing, can you heal me? Jesus says, I am willing. He's willing. We see his compassion for sinners over and over in providing both physical and spiritual healing. He not only healed physical ailments, he forgave sin. We see that he is willing and we see that his heart is gentle and lowly indeed. Later, in Mark 15, we see Jesus being mocked. Again, called the King of the Jews. This accusation stuck. A crown of thorns is placed on his head. A purple robe is thrown over his back after they've beaten him. And people are bowing contemptuously. Oh, hell, the king of the Jews. We see people challenging him. Saying, ha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Others saying, he saved others and he can't save himself. And others saying, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from that cross that we may see and believe. Saying all of these things to the King of Kings, the great I Am. the heir of all things, the radiance of, God, of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Through all these things, Jesus was silent. He was silent. He didn't say, I did all of that before. You saw me heal. You saw me provide. You heard me teach. He didn't say, I am the king. Everything was made through me and for me. And I am before all things. And in me, all things hold together. I am. He could have said that. But he didn't.
He didn't. Because he was perfectly God. And he was perfectly obedient. And he loved us perfectly. And he knew what had to be done. There's an old Alison Krauss song. It says, It's amazing how you can speak right to my heart without saying a word. You can light up the dark. Try as I may, I can never explain what I hear when you don't say a thing. All day long, I can hear people talking out loud, but when you hold me near, you drown out the crowd. Try as they may, they can never define what's being said between your heart and mine. And it goes on to say in the chorus, if you know the song, you say it best when you say nothing at all. Jesus was silent. Bearing the sins of the world, the sins of the very ones who were crucifying him, the sins of you and of me, he was silent. But in Jesus' silence, we find him still attesting to the truth of his perfect identity, his perfect obedience, and his perfect love. So what is our takeaway here? Is this just for your information, FYI, just to let you guys know the narrative story of what's happening to Jesus? An informative sermon about Jesus' obedience and love? Well, yes, but it's also more than that. What application can we take from this passage today? The application is this. We have a Savior who knows suffering. We have a Savior who knows betrayal. We have a Savior who knows temptation. We have a Savior who knows loneliness, who knows exhaustion. We have a Savior who knows our weaknesses. Who, though without sin, can perfectly relate to our struggles. Because He knows. He not just head knows, He heart knows. Because He has experienced these things. I've been in a lot of deliveries before. I've delivered a lot of babies. I've experienced delivering a baby. I know, but I've never actually delivered a baby myself, and that won't ever happen. So my, my experiential knowledge of that is pretty lacking. Jesus doesn't just head know us and our weakness. Jesus has experienced it. So Christian, so Redeemer Church, take heart this morning. I know that it's heavy, but take heart. Do you suffer? Are you tempted? Do you feel betrayed or lonely or depressed? Do you hunger or thirst? Are you poor in spirit? Are you weak? Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, what? With confidence, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, Hebrews 5, the writer says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, describes it this way. Consider what all this means. When we sin, we are encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because he will know how to receive us. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl or scold. He doesn't lash out the way many of our parents did. All this restraint on his part is not because he has deluded, he has a deluded view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. In, indeed, we are aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our depravity, even in our most, even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge. His restraint simply flows from his tender heart for his people. Hebrews is not just telling us that instead of scolding us, Jesus loves us. It's telling us the kind of love he has. Rather than dispensing grace to us from on high, he gets down with us, puts his arm around us, and he deals with us the way that is just what we need. He deals gently with us. As I mentioned when we started, we must understand the gospel of Jesus before we can fully understand why it was important that he came. And it's my hope that today's sermon and the next few weeks' sermons will help you to fully grasp this. That we are sinners deserving of the wrath of God and Christ died to save us from that. That if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. When we understand that and believe that, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, they become these events to remember, to celebrate, to proclaim, and to expect with hope and with assurance. In Jesus' silence that we see in these five verses in Mark, we see who he is. We see his obedience and we see his great love for us. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you 
thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you that we thank you for giving us a savior who knows. Who came and who lived and who suffered and died, but who was perfect, who was the perfect sacrifice that we can look to him like the Israelites in the desert being bitten by a snake, looking up to this snake on a pole to survive. God, thank you that we have Jesus to look to. That we, when we have no hope, that we have this venom of sin coursing through our veins, killing us, and nothing we can do about it. That we can look to Jesus with hope. Thank you, God. Thank you for his silence and what it shows us about who he is and about who you are, God. Thank you. Lord, we lift you up this morning. We say glory be to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.